From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Supporters of a new technology say it can dramatically cut mercury pollution, but charge the EPA is putting politics before science so the industry doesn't have to pay for the upgrade. We have these things currently ready, and the vendors are just chomping at the bit to be able to sell these things. The EPA insists the new technology is untested. When I sign a rule, however, I have to deal with what's real, not just what people who sell equipment say. Temperatures rise over mercury this week on Living on Earth. Also, a movement to create a market for cleaner, greener cars has some Californians dreaming. You could get a large group of organized consumers really changing the world by saying, this is what we want, we're willing to pay for it, please make it for us. Power to the people, plug in, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. Thirty years ago, President Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act into law. Considered by some a legal Noah's Ark, the law was supposed to save threatened plants and animals from extinction by preserving their habitats. But now environmentalists say the Endangered Species Act itself is endangered. Recently, the House Resources Committee held the first of several rounds of hearings on proposed changes to the landmark law. Joining me from Washington is Congressman Richard Pombo, a six-term Republican from California, who's the chairman of the Resources Committee. And, Mr. Congressman, thank you very much. Oh, it's great to be on. Thank you. So why the hearings? Well, what we're doing is, is taking a serious look at, at a law that is 30 years old and, and trying to find out what we can do to improve upon the the effectiveness of the law. But as uh, Ronald Reagan said, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, but it is broken, and, and that's a big part of the problem. You know, over the years, we've had over 1,300 species that have been listed. Um, Twelve of those have, have been recovered or, or taken off the list, and, and that is a not a good record in terms of the the billions of dollars that have been spent both in public money and private money. I happen to believe there has to be a better way of recovering species and doing a better job of what the intentions of the act were than what we're currently doing. But environmentalists say that the law is a, is a safety net and it's not realistic to expect a species near extinction to to recover quickly or sometimes not at all. It, it it is a safety net, but at the same time, you know we are spending, you know, millions of dollars of public money, billions of dollars in in total in in public and private money, and we are not effectively uh, bringing these species back from the brink, so to speak. Uh, what we have is a law that that is based on. 30-year-old technology, 30-year-old ideas, and I think we need to, to look at what has worked and what's not working. So what would you like to change? Well, one of the things that, that we are, in fact, it's what we had the hearing on um, last week, is having the ability to 
as a part of the critical habitat process, also adopt the recovery plan. So that, in effect, what we're doing is we're, we're, we have the science that's being done to determine how you're going to recover this species, and at the same time, you're designating what the critical habitat is necessary to recover that species. Those should be done together. Currently, in the law, they're done completely separately. My understanding is that you want to make it more difficult to to preserve critical habitat. Well, that, that's not true. Uh, that is not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're trying to to set aside ha- the habitat that is necessary to recover the species. What they do now is they adopt critical habitat based upon very limited knowledge or limited scientific information as to how they could go about recovering that species. It's backwards the way the, the law is currently being implemented. They should know what it's going to take to recover the species or maintain its numbers before they go out and designate critical habitat. Well, according to a position paper you issued before the hearings, you called this this provision of the law about critical habitat perverse. And it is because it's backwards. Before they've even done the science to determine how they go about doing a recovery plan, they are required to go in and, and designate critical habitat when they really don't have the information to do it. So what you want to do, if, if I get this correctly, is that you want the land deemed absolutely essential and indispensable to save this species, and only then would it become critical habitat. And, and that is part of, of determining what a recovery plan is and what a, a, a process they would go through in terms of, of recovering the species. But isn't that a high barrier? I don't, I don't believe so. I believe it's the, what we should be doing in terms of how, what habitat is necessary to recover the species. Right now, they, they declare habitat where the, spa- the species may or may not be, uh, that may not be necessary for a recovery plan, or they may miss land that should be included as part of the critical habitat just for the simple fact that they don't know. But are we gambling? I mean, extinction is forever. And and if this doesn't work, if your plan wouldn't work, uh, we stand to lose hundreds and hundreds of plants and animals. Well, I would contend that that what we are proposing and, and what the the bill, the proposed bill would do, would actually do a better job of recovering species than what we're currently doing. Mm-hmm. Because I was reading something from the the Defenders of Wildlife. We called them up. We spoke to uh, Jamie Rappaport-Clark of the organization. And she says that, uh, she says, speaking about you, yet this chairman is single-handedly leading a crusade to eviscerate the habitat protection standards of the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you talked to to Ms. Clark because as the uh, director of Fish and Wildlife Service in the Clinton administration, she advocated that we fix the critical habitat plan. And in fact, when she, when she was the director of Fish and Wildlife Service, she said that she had seen no positive benefit to any species of declaring critical habitat. Now that that she has a different job, she's saying a little bit different things, but as the director of Fish and Wildlife in the Clinton administration, her position was that that it did little if no good to recovering species the way the law currently works. Well, the law doesn't seem to, to work all that well if you consider how long it takes for some animals to actually make it onto the list. Some animals spend 20, 
even 30 years uh, just waiting to get listed. And, and some of those species don't, should not be listed. Just because a species is on the candidate list does not mean that it is endangered. Do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Sure I do. I, I mean, who is not an environmentalist? Who doesn't care about the natural environment around them? I mean, find someone who doesn't want clean water or clean air. Find somebody who, who doesn't care if species become extinct. I mean, that is a, a, a moral value that we as Americans share. But the problem that, that we run into is that people invest so much into a law, they lose sight of, of the fact that the law is not working and there's got to be a better way to do this than what we're currently doing. Because you know what your critics say. They say, you know, here's a guy who runs a ranch in California and he's more interested in the property rights uh, and compensating landowners than he is about protecting uh, endangered wildlife. Well, as a rancher and somebody who grew up in on the farm and, and spent all my time in and around wildlife and and with animals, I care very deeply about it. But I also do care very deeply about people's private property rights and, and the individual rights we as, as all Americans have. It's no different than than any than any other civil right that is protected. I happen to believe that we can protect endangered species, that we can have a clean environment, that these people that are out there saying we have to choose between having a healthy economy and a healthy environment are presenting a false choice. I think we can do both. We just have to be willing to do it. And, you know, unfortunately, some of these folks are more interested in maintaining the status quo, even though it has proven to be a failure, than they are in, in looking at what we can do to make it better. But in striking this balance, how do you, where do you come on the side of property rights versus preserving species? I, I don't think you have to make that choice. I think you can do both. Part of that is is by changing the incentives that exist in current law. Right now, it is seen as a big disincentive if a property owner finds endangered species on their property. We can change that and make it a positive through grants, through programs that, that are run through the federal and state government, so it becomes a positive incentive for people to have endangered species and to manage their property in a way that creates and maintains habitat. At one point a few years ago, you were offering or you wanted wanted to pay uh, landowners to uh, preserve their habitats. And I think we should. And I think that would completely change the negative incentives that exist in the law right now. And it, by having a cooperative plan between private landowners and the government in terms of protecting endangered species habitat would completely change the incentives that exist right now in current law. It's going to be tough to pass, you know, any changes to the Endangered Species Act uh, this year. It's an election year. Oh, absolutely. This year is going to be tough. To, it's going to be tough to pass anything. But I do want to start people talking about it and thinking about it. And you know, I do believe that there, there are responsible people within the environmental community who will come to the table and say, you know, there are problems with the current law. These are the things that we think need to be fixed. Congressman Pombo, I know that uh, before you became a, a lawmaker, you were, were a full-time rancher, and you got into politics kind of in a strange way. It's when, the, I guess, there was a, a case of endangered species on your land. 
Well, it, it, most of my district is, is considered habitat for one endangered species or another. Um, in the area in which I live in, in California, we have a, an endangered fox. It's, it's a kit fox in our area, and, and that has had a, an impact on decisions that are being made out in, in that part of California. You've had an interesting political career, Congressman. Uh, uh, you're sitting as the chairman on, on this committee, and you, I understand, bypassed nine other more senior Republicans. <laughs> yeah, I did. It, it was uh, when there was an opening in the chairmanship of the committee, I, I decided that I would make a play for to become the next chairman of the committee, and I was successful in doing that. How'd you do it? Well, I I think a lot of it was just convincing my colleagues that that I could do the job, that that I could hopefully change what some of these old debates are. It's like what we're talking about today. A lot of of these old debates are people that that rush to to opposite ends of of the political spectrum and start throwing rocks at each other. And I believe there's a better way to do this. I believe that that there are ways for us to sit down and talk about these issues and figure out a better way to do it. Not everybody's going to get everything they want, but in the end, I think we can come to a compromise that will do a better job than what we currently do. And there are a lot of issues like this that are out there that I think we just need to to put down our swords for a little while and, and actually sit down and talk to each other. Congressman Pumbo, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you. Richard Pombo is a Republican from California and chairman of the House Resources Committee. Coming up on the menu, healthy fish and sustainable seafood. Stay tuned to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A local high school band strains to entertain tourists on this dock along Boston's historic harbor. From here, you can see Old Ironside. It's not far from the place where revolutionary patriots turned Boston Harbor into the world's most famous teapot, Boston's past, present, and future are inextricably linked to the sea. Nearby in the Capitol building hang the sacred cod and holy mackerel, models honoring the once plentiful fish that were the colony's first industry. Visitors to this wharf can also tour the New England Aquarium. Ironically, it's located just across the dock from one of the busiest fish restaurants in the country, Legal Seafood. I have a deal with the aquarium. You know, I get, they, they sell me all their floaters. Roger Berkowitz likes to joke, but he knows where his fish comes from and says, so should you, because the source and safety of seafood is literally on the line. Berkowitz is a board member of the New England Aquarium and president of Legal Seafood. It's a Boston institution that began with a single family-owned restaurant a quarter century ago and now has 30 restaurants from Massachusetts to Miami. In a day, Legal Seafood serves more than 10,000 meals, in a year, 40 varieties of fresh fish, more than any other restaurant in the country. Just about all of the fish, millions of pounds, come here to Legal's holding plant at the edge of Boston Harbor. 
where we put on hairnets, roll up our pants, stuff our legs into rubber boots, and enter a room filled with color-coded plastic vats of fish. At Legal Seafood, they say, if it isn't fresh, it isn't legal. You could also say, if it isn't freezing, it isn't fresh. The plant is an icebox. Oh, it's like Antarctica here. The colder you keep fish, the, the, the better it maintains itself. So from the time it leaves the water we ha- yeah, and gets on a boat and is iced in, we have to make sure from the time we unload it, it's always kept cold. It never comes in contact with heat until it goes right on the grill. Today, two-thirds of the fish consumed in the United States is eaten in restaurants. And while the average American's appetite for seafood has remained fairly constant over the decades, about 15 pounds a year, there are a lot more mouths to feed than ever before, and overfishing has led to the collapse of many fisheries. Aquaculture, or fish farming, was once seen as the answer to the supply problem, and today a quarter of the fish served in the U.S. are farm-raised. But fish farming isn't without its problems. It can pollute the sea, and toxins can accumulate in the flesh of farm-raised fish. So today, Roger Berkowitz says the future of the seafood industry in the United States hangs on the safety and sustainability of the resource. I know for a fact that if I ever put Chilean sea bass on my menu, it would be one of the most popular fish I've ever done. I won't do it. I have, you know, I've had it before. It tastes delicious. But it's not a sustainable fishery. Eighty-five percent of what's being harvested now is illegal. How much of the fish that legal sells mm. is farm-raised? Mm. Good question. We, we see ourselves in the business of uh, uh, fresh fish, and I th- like the additional challenge of trying to get it wild as opposed to farm. I'm trying to wean away from, from farm salmon to do more with Alaskan wild salmon. Uh, a, it's a sustainable fishery. Uh, B, uh, I think the flavor nuances are, are just spectacular. Now, I still use farm product. Uh, I use Arctic char from Iceland, a spectacular uh, farmed product. I use, I use some farm shrimp because it's a much more consistent product than I can get on a wild product. There are many lists of, of fish to you know, enjoy, fish to avoid. Mm-hmm. On the avoid list that I'm looking at, it says shrimp, imported, farmed, and wild are to be avoided. Farmed and wild. Well, you know, I, there is a glut of shrimp on the market right now, so why would you avoid it? They're saying that the yeah. farming of shrimp is yeah. a very polluting type of farming. Yeah, like anything else, you know, let, let's, let's take a look at beef. There are great beef lots and there are poor ones. There are people who, who farm in a very sustainable method. You know, they don't dump the effluents out without filtering it and taking care of it, and those that do a terrible job. But how does the average consumer know? that the farm-raised fish they're buying mm-hmm. wasn't a good farmer or a bad Well, farm. you know, it, it's interesting. Consumers have more power than they know. They have the opportunity to vote with their feet and go into a, a you know, restaurant, ask for information about it. If I went to the fish market mm-hmm. where I go shopping, mm-hmm. they'd look at me like I was from out of space. You know, I mean, they're, they're lucky if they know it was farm-raised, let alone anything well, else. Well, you know, if, if there were enough people going there and asking the question, then, then they'd they, they better wise up pretty soon. To ensure safety and quality, Legal has its own high-tech laboratory. The place smells like the ocean. Every swordfish and tuna served at its restaurants is first sampled for mercury contamination. While Berkowitz says the health benefits from the fish far outweigh possible risks, the company's mercury standards are tougher than the federal government's. Stephen Martinello carries a clipboard and wears a white lab coat. He's Legal's registered sanitarian. You're our registered sanitarian. It's a license that you get from the state of Massachusetts, so you'd be actually enforced the public health laws of the state if you worked on a board of health. 
Steve, you've got your, you know, your microscopes, your analyzers, your test tubes, and all that. I have a kitchen. How do I know what I'm buying? You definitely want to buy off a licensed, reputable dealer because they are licensed and they have to be inspected. Uh, as far as uh, murky content is concerned, if you ask a fishmonger the origin of the tuna, uh, the origin of the sword would help out a lot. Well, yeah, where should I avoid buying it from? Well, uh, we find that we've had a little bit higher counts um, from areas from the South Seas, but places like Panama and Ecuador and down by the Gulf, Louisiana, real close, are very, very good. What happens if you go over your limit? What do you do with that fish? We send it back. We give it back to the vendor. And now he, but now he can sell it someplace else. Possibly, yes. There's an action level the FDA puts for mercury, but there's no action to go along with that action level because the decision on how dangerous mercury is to people has not really been decided on yet. So you're measuring this for the action level, but if it goes over that, there's really you can do anything you want. You really could sell it legally. Yeah, if we could, if we wanted to, but we don't. Infants and pregnant women are most at risk when mercury enters the food chain. That's because mercury can damage developing nervous systems. These moms, that's short for mothers opposed to mercury, went to the White House with a message that the Bush administration's proposed rule on mercury does little to reduce that risk. It's like tuna fish sandwiches. That's what I make for lunch. And it's and to think that, that I've been harming my kids all these years, you know, without any knowledge results little devastating, but the fact that nothing's being done about it by the Bush administration even makes me more infuriated. The Environmental Protection Agency plans to reduce mercury emissions from coal-fired power plants 70% over the next 15 years, but the proposal hit a nerve, and the EPA was flooded with public comments, the most in the agency's history. Now the EPA says it will delay action on the rule while it reviews the comments. Most deal with whether a new technology to control mercury emissions can do the job. And if so, how soon? Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. Lawmakers gathered near the Capitol to look over stacks of cards and letters collected in opposition to EPA's proposal for controlling mercury pollution. Some 450,000 people have commented, and Connecticut Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman says most are telling EPA to try again on mercury. This rule has now become the most disapproved rule of any in the history of the EPA, and there's good reason for it. Lieberman and others demanded an explanation for how paragraphs from power industry memos showed up word for word in EPA's proposal. They also want to know why the agency would wait more than a decade to implement what they call modest reductions in mercury. They claim technology already exists to make deeper cuts now. EPA Administrator Mike Levitt told the National Press Club last month that he agrees the status of technology to control emissions is key to the mercury rule. But that's where the agreement ends. Frankly, this is the issue on which this turns. I brought a panel of scientists and engineers together who not only understood this, they invented it. And they made clear to me that the new technology that we have such optimism on to reduce mercury from power plants is coming, but it will not be widely distributable nor adequately tested until 2010. Those who say we can reduce it by 90 percent by 2010 
and 7 are guilty of old thinking. Levitt's remarks leave some key players in the business of pollution control technology puzzled and dismayed. Dave Forder is executive director of the Washington-based Institute for Clean Air Companies, which represents about 80 businesses making and marketing pollution control equipment. Forder says EPA's top officials never asked for his input on the mercury rule. Well, I mean, we, we are the vendor uh, community, or a good part of the vendor community, and uh, we haven't spoken directly to Levitt on this and haven't really been asked about our opinion on it. So I just have to assume that who he's been talking to are the people that don't have a vested interest in making this actually happen. Forder insists technology does exist that can cut mercury from coal power plants up to 90 percent. He points to a long-term test underway at the Southern Company's power plant in Alabama, showing good results at relatively low cost. And Forder says a more aggressive EPA rule would spark more competition and creativity among companies, further lowering both costs and emissions. We have these things currently ready, and the, the vendors are just chomping at the bit to be able to sell these things. If we didn't think we could do it, we wouldn't be out there you know, pushing for these things to happen. An EPA spokesperson calls the technology Forder promotes hopeful, but says it still has kinks that must be worked out before it's commercially available. The agency wants the technology tested on all types of coal and boilers used across the power industry. Until then, EPA Chief Levitt says the technology's performance can't be guaranteed. When I sign a rule, however, I have to deal with what's real, not just what people who sell equipment say. But some EPA insiders say the equipment salesmen are right. Bruce Buckeye retired as director of EPA's Air Enforcement Division just after the Mercury proposal was announced. Buckeye says the agency's own reviewers concluded years ago that deep mercury cuts were possible with existing technology. He's suspicious of the agency's new argument that the technology is not ready for prime time. If you go back a few years before these latest pronouncements and read what EPA was saying about these technologies and about what people knew, then you see a, a stark contrast. I think this is made up. Buckeye's input was not included in the agency's mercury proposal. He says many career EPA employees were frozen out of the process while political appointees and the White House drafted the document. Uh, we learned of these new proposals uh, the same way everybody else did uh, by reading about them in the newspaper. Uh, this was top down. Uh, the agency was given a decision and told to write it up. So uh, looking at this from the science side of things, how, how does it, is it science? Uh, no. Um, well, science is not the driver on policy decisions. Uh, the, the contacts with whoever talks to whoever at the White House drives that policy. Uh, science is used to go find a justification for a decision that's reached for other reasons. The extended comment period gives EPA time to reconsider its assessment of the technology. Forder, with the Clean Air Companies, says that means he'll finally get a 45-minute meeting with EPA's deputy for air issues. If EPA comes out and says the rule is based on there is no technology available, and I'm sitting here with vendors and, 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 uh, and uh, licenses and everything else, and they're saying technology is available, you know, then we've got, we need, we need a meeting of the minds at some point. So 45 minutes of meeting of the minds, that's what I'm looking for. We'll learn if Forder changes any minds at the agency when EPA presents its final rule on mercury next March. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
To see one of the most remarkable small business success stories in Uganda, you have to duck, or you'll get caught in the laundry. Clothes hang in the courtyard of Peace Bayunduskaya's home in rural Kabale, Uganda. It's here the 36-year-old mother of four runs Blessing Abide Enterprises. Last year, Peace was named Ugandan Businesswoman of the Year. Beneath the laundry is her latest venture. Hot in case and solar dryers. Filling her courtyard are desk-sized solar dryers. Now, in developed countries, solar dryers are hardly extraordinary, but in rural southwest Uganda, simple devices made of wood covered in clear and black plastic are an innovative technology providing lives and livelihoods for hundreds of peasants. Peace builds the dryers from plans supplied by the UN and uses them to dehydrate oyster mushrooms. Five years ago, Peace Bayunduskaya was selling used clothing when she decided to become an oyster mushroom mogul and began teaching peasants how to grow them. I want to encourage people to venture into this uh, project, which doesn't need big capital to begin. And um, it needs minimal land. So I would encourage people to venture into this uh, activity so that we can at least uplift our standards of living. Why mushrooms? They are nutritional. They are medicinal. They are easy to grow. And I basically wanted to deal with the rural communities, those people who are so unfortunate. Peace's son sorts empty pint whiskey bottles that she buys from local bars. The bottles are sterilized and filled with sorghum to grow the oyster mushroom spores. I sell this bottle at 1,000. This is like the world headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Peace learned how to grow mushrooms at an extension course in Oregon. She started a demonstration plot in her home and business literally mushroomed. Today, she provides the raw materials, the growing medium, and trains the people who teach peasants how to grow the fungus. For their labors, the peasants get about $2 for a kilo of fresh mushrooms and $16 a kilo for dried. So far, 700 people have been trained. 600 are women. Mostly it deals with cooking, collecting water and firewood. And normally women do that work, yeah? But men are also trying, because I've now uh, trained 38 trainers, and we have two men, which is good to me. People outside have success stories. They are improving day by day, and I believe we should be okay. Peace Bayunduskaya, Managing Director of Blessing Abide Enterprises, Kabale, Uganda. For pictures of peace, her mushroom dryers, and yes, her laundry, check out our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, new ideas in California rules spur a generation of vehicles that are greener than green. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. The tuna fishing industry first adopted dolphin-friendly fishing practices in the 1980s. Since then, the number of dolphins killed as bycatch has significantly dropped. But a corresponding recovery of the dolphin population has yet to follow, and no one knows why for sure. A new study published this week in the Journal of Biology offers one explanation. An Israeli mathematician created a model to analyze the complicated but crucial bond shared between mother dolphins and their calves as they swim. 
young dolphins position themselves to hitch a free ride in the mother's wake in order to keep a pace. In this way, they're much like racing cyclists. It works something like this: the wake or displacement effect creates a forward flow pattern. The calf can ride this wave with little effort. Meanwhile, the so-called Bernoulli section effect draws the calf close to its mother's side. Riding shotgun, up to 60% of the swimming work is done for the calves. They rely on this outside boost until about age three, but fishermen can inadvertently break this mother-calf swimming bond during a tuna chase, as the mother accelerates to escape the boats. When this happens, a calf can become permanently separated from its mother and be lost. Research suggests that because of this premature separation, a significant number of young dolphins may be dying before they are able to breed. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. So, how many miles a gallon does your car get? With gas prices soaring, high MPGs have become the new status symbol. And if you want to wait a few decades, carmakers say hydrogen-powered vehicles will have you passing the Joneses without pollution. But what if you can't wait? Well, as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, automakers have already developed dozens of new clean cars that will leave your polluting neighbors in the dust. You can't talk about today's clean cars without acknowledging one 50-mile-per-gallon car that's becoming almost common on the roads in California and Florida. Though you might not see many yet in Boise or Milwaukee, it's the gasoline-electric hybrid Toyota Prius. I'm Chris Abrams, the general sales manager of Toyota of Hollywood in Hollywood on Hollywood. Chris Abrams has been watching the Prius become chic. Toyota of Hollywood is lucky to be in a demographic that makes us the number one electric hybrid dealer in the nation. We have Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Tom Hanks,、uh, Tony Shalhoub, Lucy Liu, Cameron Diaz. Abrams' problem, in fact, is supply. Other dealers around the country have the same problem: they can't lay their hands on enough Priuses. The Toyota factory hasn't been able to keep up. That's why I don't see very many of them out here on the lot. No, no, you don't. And the ones you see on the lot that are new are all sold. If a truck pulled up right now and there were 200 Priuses, 300 Priuses on it, it would maybe fill the orders I have now. Maybe. So, if you don't mind waiting four months, the Prius is one nearly zero emissions possibility, and some 76,000 Americans have bought them. Another 41,000 have bought the Honda Civic Hybrid, and about 12,000 are zipping around in the sleek hybrid Honda Insight. That one's only a two-seater, so the appeal is limited. But you'll soon have many more than just these three hybrid choices. Later this year, there will be two new sedans in hybrid form: the Honda Accord and Nissan. On Altima. If you're looking for a pickup, the Chevy Silverado and Equinox should be out later this year too.
But carmakers hope hybrid sales will jump out of the tens of thousands and into the hundreds of thousands when hybrid SUVs arrive. Like the new hybrid Ford Escape featured in this internet ad. A hybrid version of the Toyota Highlander SUV will be out in early 2005. And if Toyota is just a little down market for your taste, Lexus is rolling out the first luxury hybrid SUV, and it won't even be marketed as a green car. Why emphasize miles per gallon and global warming when you can talk about power and speed instead? This is the candid way Lexus puts it in an early ad for the RX400H. Today, at purchase, fuel economy is the last consideration of a sport utility vehicle buyer. But it's the first dissatisfier once they get the car home. In the case of the RX400H, we will sell performance and surprise with improved fuel economy. It's dawning on automakers that because electric motors reach full torque almost as soon as you switch them on, they can actually increase performance, or what some drivers think of as that V8 feel. Buying a hybrid still requires some commitment because they cost several thousand dollars more than their side-by-side non-hybrid brothers. But enough about regular old hybrids. Remember the all-battery car, the plug-in electric? There were a few made in the late 1990s, but Americans, it seems, weren't much interested in a car that ran out of charge after 100 miles and needed to be plugged in. But reports of their demise may have been premature. In his driveway in Redwood City, California, Felix Kramer admires his Prius. I love it. But like so many of us, Kramer wants to change the thing he loves. He wants Toyota to build its next hybrids with bigger batteries and a plug so people who wish to can do all their daily driving without the gasoline engine ever kicking in. Not content with 50 miles per gallon, he wants to get 90. He wants something that doesn't exist right now, a plug-in hybrid. Our point of view is that you don't have to plug it in. You have the option of plugging it in. Conceivably, you could go for months without going to a, a fueling station. And a lot of surveys have shown that going to gas stations is a very unpopular activity. Kramer has helped organize a whole community of fellow pluggies online. They've poured over every nook and cranny in their Priuses, and they've discovered certain hints that lead them to believe Toyota might just be considering the plug-in option, too. To the left of the steering wheel is a black button that is blank. That is the magic EV-only button. In Europe and in Japan, if you push that button, the car is a pure battery electric vehicle. The existence of this EV button has inspired a tremendous amount of discussion online about what would it take to make the Prius a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. And there's another curiosity at the back of the car. So we're going back around to the trunk. The uh, Prius is a hatchback, and there's a hidden compartment in the Prius. A hidden compartment. First I take out the carpet. And there's a pretty substantial area down here. 
it's a nice empty space where a beefed-up battery could go in a future version, or maybe it's just a convenient place to hide a camera from view. I have to mention here one more thing that Felix Kramer and other drivers of electric and hybrid vehicles love about their cars, and that's regenerative braking. With regenerative braking, you put your foot on the brake, and the energy of the wheels spinning against the brake pads recharges the battery. When you brake, you watch the charge on the battery rise. We stand in his driveway, and I ask Felix why he's dedicating so much time to making a very clean, advanced car into a more electric car. We think that something really new could happen from this CalCars campaign. You could get a large group of organized consumers defining what kind of a product they need and demonstrating to the manufacturers that there's demand for that vehicle and really changing the world by saying, this is what we want, we're willing to pay for it, please make it for us. I wondered what engineers might say to the idea of a next generation of plug-in cars at a time when it seemed like plug-ins had been superseded. Robert Graham and Mark Duval are both engineers and managers at the Electric Power Research Institute in Palo Alto. The institute develops everything from nuclear power plants to batteries for the power industry. Of course, the power industry would like everything to plug in, but even power company critics agree, gallon for gallon of fuel, electricity is a much cleaner way to run vehicles. And Duval believes hybrids that can plug in are definitely on the way. Um, a conventional mid-sized car gets about 27 miles per gallon. That's, the, what the, that's what the federal government mandates, and so that's what it is. A car like a Toyota Prius gets about twice the fuel economy of a conventional mid-sized car. A plug-in hybrid mid-sized car would cut that in half again. So you'd be down to a quarter of the fuel consumption of a conventional car. So it's really a dramatic difference. And it's the type of difference that you need if we're actually going to reverse our consumption of petroleum. So how much does it cost to juice the battery up at night? And how much compared to just letting the hybrid gas motor charge the battery? If you had a plug-in hybrid and it drove 20 miles a day on electricity and it was a mid-sized car, you would need less than 50 cents to charge it per charge. So every day you, you drive to work and back and uh, that $15 a month would at today's prices would replace about $60 in gasoline. And what do they make of the EV button and that extra hidden space in the Prius? Is it a clue that Toyota might consider producing vehicles that run longer distances on battery only? Bob Graham. I'm convinced that Toyota already has a plug-in hybrid design ready to bring to the marketplace because it's a logical next step. And it's, they see, as I do, an urban America that wants a clean vehicle in downtown America or downtown Europe. It makes good logical sense to have a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid together as a family of vehicles. Part of what convinced Graham about hybrid plug-ins was a project now underway and still under wraps at Daimler Chrysler in Germany. They're making a plug-in hybrid version of the Dodge Sprinter delivery truck. That's the first time a major car manufacturer has committed to doing a plug-in electric hybrid vehicle. While Daimler Chrysler is still only building the first 30, Graham says for him, it's a reality. I don't see any reason why this vehicle will not get commercialized. There's no technical hurdles. There's no market hurdles. 
There's some volume hurdles, but uh, we think the market demand will, will overcome that. I can't think of a single reason why we won't be successful today. If you asked me that same question two years ago, uh, it would have been a different story. But there are no reasons why we will not be successful today. So there you have that option. Some people are excited about marrying the hybrid car to the optional plug-in. But improvements in battery technology could mean that even the pure battery electric vehicle could rise from the crypt. Recently on David Letterman, actor Tom Hanks, who has an electric car and a Prius, revealed that he has invested money in AC Propulsion, a respected Los Angeles electric car builder. It turns out that Toyota, in partnership with AC Propulsion, plans to build an all-electric plug-in version of its boxy Scion XB. Now, here's the great thing. The greatest thing about driving an electric car, Dave, and I know I say Dave a lot. <laughs> you still scare me, Dave. You do. I didn't hear that. Um, is that you never have to stop at a gas station again. Oh, and sure. I'm telling you, you yeah. want to talk about freedom, America? Yeah. You never stop at a gas station again. Except when, when you really want a big gulp and some Slim Jims. Then you stop off. There's also another clean car possibility already on the market, and that's natural gas. Honda makes a natural gas version of the popular Civic. We caught up with Honda's Annabelle Cook as she was making a presentation to people who buy lots of cars, fleet managers. So there's the Civic. It looks like any other Civic. It's actually built on the same assembly line as the gasoline vehicles, and it's built in Ohio. Now, why did we go natural gas? Natural gas is less expensive than gasoline. Right now at some stations, it's about $1.34 a gasoline gallon equivalent. It's also, of course, much cleaner. And as a technology, it's becoming more and more available. Up until now, natural gas vehicles have mostly been sold to taxi companies in cities and counties, people who can gas up at their own pump. But the number of natural gas pumps is growing. There are 1,300 in the United States, 220 in California. And if Honda has its way, you'll soon be able to fill up your natural gas car at home in your garage with a hose connected to a wall box that in turn is connected to your gas meter, the same one you use for your stove. And that's what the unit looks like. It's about the size of a pay telephone, and this appliance will be able to be placed in your garage. It'll tap into your gas line that's already going into most of your homes, and it will allow you to fill your vehicle overnight. Honda now helps to start selling the boxes in the fall at about one to $2,000 each. So we've mentioned natural gas, pure battery cars, plug-in hybrids, as well as the standard hybrids with no plug. But there's one other clean car option, and it might be the biggest surprise. In struggling to meet California's strict air rules, major car makers have figured out ways to tweak the plain old gasoline car and make it super clean. At least nine automakers are making such next-gen versions of their cars, including the Ford Focus, Toyota Camry, and BMW 325i. Professor Jim Lentz of the University of California at Riverside helped run the first tests. They are so clean that on a few occasions when we've been out on the freeway making measurements, they actually produce cleaner air out the tailpipe than is coming in the intake of the engine. So one could argue they're actually cleaning up the air. This is a rare occasion, but it's interesting even if it happens at any point in time. 
It's hard for many people to believe that engineers have been quietly reducing tailpipe smog by another 90 percent. The more visible trend has been SUVs, but Lent says the breakthroughs happened with almost all the manufacturers. The computer, the microprocessor, came. It allowed gasoline to be more accurately distributed to the cylinders and air. To be produced exactly in the right amount for the combustion process, and to cause the spark plugs to fire at the right amount. California air officials predict six times as many of these PZEVs, or partial zero emissions vehicles, as hybrids will be made next year. They don't get the good mileage you can get with the hybrids, so you'll probably still be going to the gas station just as often. But they're probably the cheapest route to clean air: fifteen thousand dollars for a Ford Focus at the lower end. The bottom line. You don't have to wait for the fuel cells to have a pretty broad choice of clean cars. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. You can check out a complete list of the new generation of clean cars available today at our website, livingonearth.org. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, there's a lot of talk lately about hydrogen as the next big thing in energy. Some skeptics say it's decades away and will never be too cheap to meter. But on a small island in the middle of the North Atlantic, the idea is more than a lot of hype. In Iceland, hydrogen is already happening. Can the world afford to have the hydrogen project far into the future? Isn't it of great need, even pressing need, for the total global environment to have the hydrogen project as a viable option here and now, as quickly as possible? It's the promise of hydrogen on the next Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us any time you want and get the stories behind the stories. By going to livingonearth.org, that's livingonearth.org. And by Jiminy, we leave you in the Mexican desert with a lone cricket. Hildegard Westerkamp recorded this insect song, took it back to her studio, and used it to frame her composition. She calls "Cricket Voice."
Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Boland, Eileen Bolinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our technical director is Paul Wabrick. Allison Dean composed our themes. Special thanks to Ernie Silver and Carl Lindemann. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earthier. Steve Kerwood is back next week. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.